0: Where this week did you maybe wish was different? And I'm not just saying you, you know, wanted to do something fun yesterday, but nobody invited you or something like that. But where this week did you maybe notice certain parts about yourself and wish that you were different? wish that you would have handled things different, wish that you would have said things different or done things different or not done certain things. Maybe you don't have a particular area that you could point to, but most of us, when we look at this week or this year or maybe even the last couple years of our life, we want change. We want to grow. We want to be different, to do different, to speak different, to think different, to live different. There's areas that we know that we need change, and we want change in. It might be for you that there's certain areas that you know are sinful and you don't want to be doing those things anymore You don't want to be stuck in those things You don't want to be stuck in that way of thinking or doing or speaking or feeling about things You you want to to grow and change there. Maybe it's in your relationships you look at your various relationships and you want those to improve. You want your marriage to improve or your family life to improve or even extended family, the way you relate or your work relationships. And you know that life would be better, that that things would be better if your relationships could improve and change. Or maybe it's just kind of, uh, this is you know not necessarily a very educated term, but maybe it's just doing it right, whatever that it is for you. Just you want to get it right. You want to get fathering right or get mothering right or just kind of get friendships right and just do it right. You're sick of getting it wrong and messing things up and you want to be able to change and and do it the right way. And There's all sorts of different ways you can kind of look at where we want change, but we want to experience change in our life. And Christianity is not just a, a set of rituals, things that we do baptism and communion and coming on a Sunday and various things like that. It's not just it's not just rituals that we participate in. And it's not even just beliefs that we have. It's not just the certain creeds and things that we all assent to. God wants to give us a whole way of life. He invites us into a whole way of living. God can and wants to actually change your life. It's, it's not a good Christianity if It affects sort of our beliefs and certain kind of sacred moments, but the rest of our life is really separate from it. That's not a good Christianity and that's not really what he calls us into. He wants to give us a whole way of living. God wants to invite us in to experience a whole way of life. And oftentimes we miss that. We might have certain beliefs about christianity and we know who god is and we know who jesus is and we might believe jesus saves me he's my savior and and that's true but but we miss that jesus actually calls us in to experience a whole way of living a whole way of life and if we do think like that if we do and i I know that sometimes we do we do think yes there there is a whole way of life that christianity is if we do think like that oftentimes we actually miss the resources miss the power that's available to live that way. And what we're going to look at today, Paul, in his letter to the church in the city of Ephesus, he wants to help us see what we need to experience the change that we desire, the change that God desires, to step into a whole different way of life. He wants to help us see what we need to have a whole different way of life, of living, of change. So if you want change in your life, and I know I do, and I, I'm, I'm assuming, believing that there's areas that you want that as well, if you want that, Paul's going to help us think about three different things that we need to consider if we want to experience the change that God has for us. There's three different things he says we need to consider. The first is that we need to consider where you came from. If you want to experience the change that God has for you in your life, you have to consider where you Came from. When you look back in your life, don't you look back at your life and see certain things that you thought or did and and go, I'm glad I don't do that anymore. I'm glad I don't think like that anymore. I'm glad I don't dress like that anymore. Aren't there certain things? I remember I used to wear dress pants, like black dress pants, but I'd have white socks. And just thought, you know, that's cool. And I, a friend in college was like, that's weird. You shouldn't do that. I was like, I saw Michael Jackson do it. And you're like, ah, uh, yeah, WWMJD is not the best philosophy of life. You know, you, if Michael Jackson might've done it. That doesn't mean you should do it. That's usually not the best gauge of how you live. And there's certain things that you might've looked back on and go, I can't believe I used to dress like that. There's certain things you look back on and go, I can't believe I used to do that. Things that you I used to drive my car so crazy and just try to make go off jumps and things And then I got in an accident and cost me a couple thousand dollars. Like i'm not doing that anymore And that was last year and no i'm just kidding (laughs) But there's certain things that you're like, man. I i'm glad I don't do that anymore And there's things that hopefully you look back. Hopefully you look at the five year ago self And go i'm glad that's not me anymore If you're always, if you look at your whole life and go, yep, I've always been the same and I'm happy for it. No regrets. You've got the tattoo. No regrets spelled wrong or something, you know, and you're like, no, that's, you should have regrets. You should be able to look back five years, two years. There's certain things that I look back on and I go, man, I can't believe that I thought like that when we were first married and ways I interacted with my wife. There's things in parenting that I go, I'm glad that, that that has changed. I don't do that anymore. That we always want to be growing and changing and we look back on where we've come from and we always want to be able to say the five year, and I'm using five years as a, as a range because sometimes in the moment it's not like, oh man, I'm so glad I'm not who I was last week. It, change doesn't always happen that quick, right? But we look back and go, you should be able to see, I'm glad that I'm not in that place anymore. And the same is true with sinful patterns in our life. That there's probably areas in your life that you don't do anymore. And things and ways that you talked or thought or felt and lived. And, And God wants us to see, look, you've come. You've come far. There's places and things that I've brought you. And there might be more that has to happen, yes. But we have to consider where we came from. And Paul gives this kind of explanation of where they came from. He says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk, meaning that this is how they used to walk. You should no longer walk means this is what you used to do. This is how you used to live. This is where you came from. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do, even though they are Gentiles, the majority of the church that he's writing to. Gentiles means non-Jewish people. It's the people of the nations. And he says, you should no longer walk as Gentiles do, but they're Gentiles. It would be if I said to you, you should no longer live as Americans do. But there's a lot of stuff of what it means or makes kind of the makeup of American culture that's not good. And so that would still be appropriate to say is shouldn't live the way that a lot of Americans do. You shouldn't live the way as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. He says, you need to remember where you came from. You need to remember where you came from. And if you want to change, if you want to change, you have to see what is true of the life that you left. You have to see what's actually true. Because sometimes when you're in it, when you're in the moment of living a certain way and thinking a certain way and doing things, and it just feels normal. But what Paul's doing really is exposing, here's the truth. Here's what your life was actually like. And he uses, oh, sorry, I missed this. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So he's describing where, how they used to walk. And he says, here's what's actually true. This is what the condition is actually like. They are darkened in their understanding. They have ignorance and they have hard hearts. There's a hardness of heart that exists when you're in the moment. It might not feel like that, but what he's saying is this is where you actually came from. This is what life was actually like. you actually didn't understand how things worked. It might have felt normal, the way you thought about things might have seemed good and right and logical even, but he says it's darkened in the understanding, meaning the true reality of how God has actually made the world and how things actually work and who you actually are and who God is, you didn't understand it right. Even if you felt wise, even if you were able to be, there's there's a lot of, the Bible talks about worldly wisdom, which there's a kind of wisdom, but it's it's not God's wisdom There's a darkness in the understanding an ignorance not really knowing how things work not really knowing What truth is and what good is and what beautiful is And there's a hardness of heart that you had hardness of heart means that There is you know, i've actually heard different atheist philosophers and people say something like this where they would say I hope christianity is not true. I don't want it to be true It's not just that I've kind of worked out all the logical explanations. It's that I don't want it to be true. That's a hardness of heart. Now, that's pretty blatant and honest for those that say that, but we all can live this way, where we don't want to change. We don't want to believe things. We want to keep our heart where it is. And so we harden it to experience what God actually wants to do. Why can some people hear all the things about Jesus and all the things from the Bible and still resist and what Paul is doing is diagnosing the condition, saying there's a darkness in the understanding that you don't, you don't get it. And there's a hardness in the heart that doesn't actually want to receive what God has. It's not You can't argue someone into a, a changed heart. And Paul says, this is where you actually were. This, if you want to change... You have to see where you came from. And part of understanding where you came from is understanding what the condition was actually like, that there was missing of reality in a heart that resists the truth. This is the core of what the sinful condition is that then leads to becoming callous and giving yourself over to sin and desiring more and more and more. It's this heart that says, I resist God's truth. I don't want it to be true. I want to kind of live my own way and govern my own life, which then leads to giving ourselves over to things. Saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to go ahead and live this way. And I actually want more and more of these things. And then what ends up happening is that this leads to an exclusion from the life of God. That's how he really describes all of this. It's in the middle, but it's describing kind of both halves of this, that they're excluded from the life of God. That's, a, that's an awful phrase to think about being excluded from the life of God. Now think about life, because there's different kinds of life. that will help us understand this phrase, the life of God. There's different kinds of life, right? There's, maybe if we're kind of move up the scales, there's plant life. And some of you, it's springtime. doesn't feel like it, but it's springtime. And so it's time to start kind of gardening and planting the seeds. You might plant a flower garden. And that is alive, right? The flower garden, the vegetable garden, it's alive. But if I were to go to a flower and kind of pluck off uh, one of the the pieces of flower and go, all right, here you go. I, I picked a flower for you. You wouldn't freak out even though it's alive. But there's also animal life. If I were to go to your dog and pluck off its paw and say, here, put this in a vase, you would freak out because animal life is a higher form. Some of you, that image is now in your head of like, oh, puppy paw in a vase. That's disturbing. Or maybe like really cool hipster art. I don't know. That's animal life. It's a higher form of plant life, right? And then there's human life, that if you took a human and treated the way you treat a dog, that, that would be weird because it's a higher form of life. That if you took a, a human and kept them in a kennel and just said, okay, here you go, I'm going to kind of bring out your food and eat out of this dish, you'd go, that's, "That's you don't treat a human like that. There's ways that we do treat dogs that we don't treat humans. And I know some of you feel like, no, I treat my dog, it's my baby, I treat it exact well then, okay. And then there's, uh, well, just, I won't say anything about that, I'll just say, okay, and let that be my statement. And then there's uh, different kinds of human life even. And I'm not saying like different people are equal, but there's quality of life that we have, right? That you are human and yet you desire different quality of life. You might have this quality of life, but you want this quality of life. And that can come through different avenues, increased health in your relationships or physical uh, health or different things. And there's kind of living that we just exist, but there's quality of life when it comes to humans, But then there's a higher form of life than that. There is the life of God. There's the life that God brings because of who he is. There is the life of God that we can experience. And if by degrees animal life is better than plant life and is different, it's more robust, and human life is better than animal life and more robust, and we would say there's more dignity, there's more value, there's more intrinsic worth and things there then the life of God is infinitely even greater. And what he's saying is this is what is available for us to experience. This is what God wants for us, is to bring the life of God into your life. But the sinful condition is excluded from the life of God. It's excluded from all the power and benefits and beauty and strength that God actually has. And so when he tells us, remember where you came from, consider where you came from. If you want to change, you have to remember where you've come from. Now, this is different for different kinds of people, because maybe for some of you, you can look at, here's what life used to look like when I wasn't a Christian, and here's who I am now. And so you can actually, in a very literal way, think about this passage. For others of us, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, or you kind of grew up in church, and you don't necessarily have this turning point that feels very decisive if I went from this to this, but there should still be things in your life that you can point to and go, "I used to think this that wasn't godly. I used to do this that wasn't godly. I used to feel this way and I used to and, and now God's brought me over here. But you can also think about it in a way of, where would I be if it wasn't for God? Who would I be if it wasn't for God? What's the non-Christian version of yourself? What's the version of yourself that is futile in thinking, darkened in the understanding, hardened in the heart? Who would you be? So wherever it is, if if you can kind of put the marker point or if it's more this progressive growth or even if it's just kind of thinking where you would be apart from God, Paul is saying, consider where you came from. Because if you don't, we're often tempted to go back. We're often tempted to go back. We live in a world, this is why he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, because we live in a world where things that are against God are actually very normal. The ways of thinking, the ways of living and feeling and being and thinking about God and life and relationships, we live in a world where things are considered normal, but they're actually excluded from the life of God. And so he says, you're going to be tempted. The reason he says no longer walk like this is this is normal. And you're going to be tempted to be drawn back into ways of thinking and doing and being and feeling. You're going to be tempted to be drawn back in and have your walk shaped again by this. That's what we will be tempted towards. And he knows that the world around you is different. He knows that the world around you is appealing, is formative, is constant. And you will be drawn and tempted to go back into a different value system, but then end up excluded from the life of God. And he doesn't want you to miss out on that. Which is why he starts saying, no longer walk the way you walked. If you want to change, you have to consider where you came from. Doesn't that help at times if you go, man, I know I, know I used to be here. I know relationships used to be. I don't want to go back that way again. I want to move forward into what God has for me. I don't want to experience exclusion from the life of God. So he says, as he begins to talk to us about change, remember, consider where you came from. You want change? You might feel drawn to go back. It might, be, it might feel painful to step into what Jesus has for you. But if you want change, consider where you came from. That's often the first step. And then the second thing he says is, consider what he, that's God, consider what God did consider what he did so here's the next section but that is not all that we just talked about but that is not how you came to know christ assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in jesus to take off your former way of life the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self the one created according to god's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth So he says to consider what God did. No longer walk like this, but here is how you learned Christ. Here is what you experienced. Here is what he did. Consider what it is that God did. Now, if you think about what this passage says, it's actually really interesting. Because most religions will present to you the teaching of the founder. So whoever the founder is, if that's Buddha, or it's Muhammad, or, or whoever it is, they will present to you, here is the teaching of the founder, believe this teaching, and that will lead you to experience a changed life. Believe this teaching, the person that came is essentially a prophet, a teacher, a guide, a guru, and they present their teaching and say, live like this. And if you do those things, then you will experience life that is better, a good life. But that's not what Christianity says. Jesus does teach us things, yes. Christianity does say that Jesus came and taught, but it is more than that. And that's why it doesn't actually matter if Buddha is dead. He is. It doesn't matter if Muhammad is dead. He is. No one claims otherwise. It doesn't matter if the founder of any religion is dead, except for in Christianity. Because in Christianity, it doesn't just say, here is the teaching of the founder, They're dead now, but if you follow their teaching, you can experience life. Instead, what Christianity says is you can know Jesus. So he has to be alive because it says you can know him. You can actually relate to him. You can actually experience from him. It's not just listen to his teaching, it's come to know him. That's what Paul says. That is not the way that you came to know Christ you heard about him and were taught by him. But they weren't actually taught by him in the sense of Jesus wasn't there in the church at Ephesus. But Paul says you were taught by him because Paul preached to them God's word. But through that, the Holy Spirit, God is working. And so you can say they are actually taught by Jesus. They heard not just about Jesus's teaching, but heard about him. And they, even though they never met Jesus personally, Paul says you came to know him. Christianity is different. It isn't just saying that you can know the teacher's teaching, but it says you can know this person, which is why Christianity, one of the things we will often say here, is that it's not principle-centered. There are principles to live by. There are things that God gives to us of ways that we can live and experience wisdom and and the the way that he's designed the world, but it's not principle-centered. It's person-centered. Christianity is centered on a person that you can come to know. That he, who is actively involved right now because God's word, the Bible says, is living and active. And I'm not claiming that I'm Jesus, but Jesus is teaching you now. As much as this message is consistent with God's word and what it says, you are being taught by him now. So you can actually engage with him, know him, listen to his voice, be involved with him now. It isn't just know the teacher's teaching, but you can know him. You can belong to him. You can be saved by him. You can enjoy him. You can enter into relationship with him. You came to know Christ. That's what it offers to us. It's actually very different. It says that in grace, what God did is he gave you himself. He gave you himself, not just a set of teaching, but he gave you himself He gave to you himself and that now you belong to him. And what happened when he did that was that you actually experience a change inside of you. You move from the old self to a new self. Again, that's very different from just follow these set of principles. It's that he says you can actually be created new. You move from the old self to the new self. Not just a different set of actions, not just a different set of things that we do, but a new identity. He actually gives us a new identity. He changes us to go from, that's why Christianity oftentimes uses the language of dead and alive, because it isn't just, I'm following a new set of rules. It's that your old self is gone and you are now a new self. A new identity is given to you. This is a really imperfect analogy because it it doesn't quite fit. But even just think about somebody that goes into witness protection. Some of you, I know, are in witness protection currently. And your name and number and identity, no, I'm just joking. But uh, if you're in witness protection, you take on a whole new identity, right? You get a new job, you have a new name, you have to live different from whatever your former way of life was, you develop new relationships, it's a whole new self, Now, that's an imperfect analogy because at core, you might still be the same person and outwardly you're kind of living different, but still it kind of is getting at what this is, that what Jesus does for us is give us a whole new self, that when he brings us to know him, that is such that we are changed. Think about if you've ever met somebody, and maybe it's your spouse, a lot of times that's kind of how it works, but you met somebody, and when you met that person, you began to change because of encountering them. Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a mentor in your life. I remember, I don't think he's listening because he doesn't care about me, but my older brother... when my older brother, this used to happen to him all the time with different girls in he would meet. So in high school, you know, he was a total nerd and dork. Ha ha. He's a total nerd and, and, and dork. And, and he, remember he met this one girl and she would just be like, man, that shirt looks stupid. Those glasses look stupid. And she changed him. He became a cooler person. He became a better person. And he met another girl and it was kind of the same thing. And sometimes we meet somebody and because we encounter that person, we are changed. Remember my grandpa uh, used to tell me the same thing about my grandma. My grandpa was escaped from prison and murdered people and also a really hard man and met my grandma and he would always talk about her. She she died early of cancer, but he would always talk about how she was this saint and he was a totally different person from encountering her. So maybe you've had an experience like that, maybe not as profound as, as one of those, but you've had kind of some experience like that. Think about how much different it is if you meet God if you come to know him, if you are taught by him, if you are brought close to him. He is saying what happens, the effect of that is you go from old self to new self. You go from who you were to something new. He changes you from the inside out. You become a new kind of person. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says this. I've shared this uh, quote at different times, but I love the way he says this. He says, The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it's far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life. And yet, at the same time, to be good. We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, But to kill it, I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. What he is saying is that so often the way that we try to live the Christian life is I want to be me. I still want my desires and my things and my goals and my actions and my aims and my. I want to keep myself. And yet also, I want to follow Jesus. I want to make sure I give him some of my time and some of my money and some of my energy. And I want to try to be humble like he says to be. And I want to try to be generous like he says to be. But I want to be me. He says, that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus says, I want to kill you. I don't want to torment you. Torment you would be, I'm trying to let you be you, but also make you kind of do the things I want you to do. He says, no, I don't want to torment you. I don't want it to be that you have these inner feelings and desires and thinking in your heart and everything that I'm calling you to feels like such a pull and such a hurt and such a sacrifice. That's not what I want to do to you. I want to kill you and give you a new self. I want to kill your old self and give you myself. I want to enter inside of you. I want you to belong to me. I want you to be united to me. I want my life to become your life, for my thoughts to become your thoughts, for my desires to become your desires, for my will to become your will. Think about that. You might feel right now that it's like there's God's will and there's your will, and so it's hard. There's God's will, and you know what it is, and you, and it, but it's a battle. He says, I don't want it to be like that. I want your will and my, I want your will to be aligned with my will so that you want what I want. That becomes different. That transforms us. That's what he says he offers to us. That's what, if you're a Christian, that's actually what he did to you. He gave you a new self. If you're a Christian, he gave you a new identity. He did kill your old self. It's at war. Sometimes we still kind of it creeps up again, but what he is saying is remember what he did. Remember that if you are a Christian, you belong to him and he's given you a new identity. You're his now. So if you want change, if you want change, you have to remember what he did. Remember whose you are. Remember that you belong to him. That gives you a great power. It gives you a great power if you remember, this is, I belong to him now. I know him. I am living out of who I am. And then the third step is he says, consider what this means for life. Consider what it means for how we live. If, If all this is true, remember where you came from, remember what he did, then what does it mean for life now? What does it look like for how we actually live? And he gets really practical and helps walk us through Various things of what it actually looks like to live then with a new self, to live aligned with God's thinking and God's feeling and God's doing. What does that life look like? Again, we might at times think that to be a Christian means that we're saved or it means belief in God. Maybe even sometimes we think it means emotional support and God helps us. But we can think, I'm supposed to kind of basically be good, like C.S. Lewis said, But a lot of the details are left up to me. He says, no, new identity, a new self, leaving an old way of life means a new way of life. A new self comes along with new actions. That's why he uses some of this language. No longer walk. Think about a walk. A walk, different people have different walks, right? Different people have different, and a walk kind of describes a whole way of life. If you're a model, you have a certain... I won't do it. I was going to kind of do it, but I guess so I kind of will. But if you're a model, you have kind of a certain walk, and that describes your life. If you're like, uh, I don't know, a soldier, you might have a certain kind of walk, and you just always walk into the room. If you're Different, pe- different ways of life have different kind of walks. and it's a-, it's a metaphor we use to describe kind of a whole way of being, right? Or he uses the language of the take off and put on, which is really clothing language. And think about how different clothing often signifies a different way of life. With different sets of clothing come different actions, particularly with certain kinds of professions. That there's, doc- If you showed up to the doctor's office and they were just like in gym shorts and a, and a t-shirt, I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? You'd be like, uh, I don't know if I want to be treated by you. But as soon as they put on their white coat and a stethoscope, you're like, do whatever you need to. I'm willing to listen. And if police officer... If they were just kind of in gym shorts with a gun, you know, you'd be like, this is scary, right? But the uniform kind of, it signifies different actions that come along with it, or if they're in the military, right? And so that idea of put on and take off is really clothing language that says you've been given this new set of clothing, which implies a whole new way of life. And and then that's kind of the third piece, that way of life, which just describes there's a whole different way of living. So when when you have to think about where you came from and you have to think about what he did, we also have to think about what it means for life because a new identity means new actions. A new uniform means new actions. A new way of walking means a new way of living. It's a new way of life that he gives to us. And he's gonna walk through several different things of what it looks like. If you are new, what does that actually look like? What does it look like to be aligned with who God is? And that's what he says down here. It's according to God's likeness. So if you've got the uniform that is God versus soldier or or police officer, if you've got the God uniform, God's likeness, what does that look like? What happens? And he goes through several different things. And I want you to think about these as we go through these. I want you to think about each of these things, because he's going to list through several different things, and for some, some of them, maybe for some of us, it's like every single one of these, we need to go, yeah, I need to walk more like that. But some of them, you might feel like, yeah, okay, I've, I've got that part, but there's still other parts of it that you need to push into. So, so think about all these things. Here's, here's what he says. Here's the first one. He says, therefore, so because you are new, because you've been given a new set of clothes, because you're no longer walking this way, but now this way, therefore... Put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members, one of another. She talks about lying. And there's a lot of different, I don't know, if I were to say, hey, are you a liar? Most people don't consider themselves a liar, most, unless you know, yes, pathologically, I'm a liar, but most people wouldn't consider themselves a liar. And yet, a lot of times, lying is a normal part of what we do, sometimes without even thinking about it. We flatter people and say good things about them, even though we don't actually believe it. But we just kind of want to feel good, and we want to be liked, so we say things to people. Or we may call in sick to work from the ski slope. Be like, I'm sick. <coughs> and give a little, we haven't have a name for these, right? We call it a white lie, which means this is a lie that I'm okay with. A white lie. I know when my, when my kids were younger, at times they would say things, you know, find something broken and be like, oh, a ghost did that. A ghost did that. Well, a ghost is going to spank you also, you know? <laughs> not really. But you just, you, you, it's just like these little things. It's like, oh, you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to kind of, we, we might say something like fudge the truth and just kind of bend the truth, not tell the whole truth. We have euphemisms that make us feel better about not being honest. Tax season is upon us. And maybe that's the time that you go, yeah, you know, maybe I could kind of say this, or maybe I could say this. Are they really going to check? Are they really going to audit me? We can lie. Sometimes we lie about our beliefs. For those of you that are Christians, if you have friends or coworkers that are not Christians, and they ask you certain things about what you believe or what you do, and, and we kind of hide that because we don't want them to actually we don't want to feel judged or we don't want to hurt their feelings or is kind of what we might say and so we don't actually tell them what we believe we hide our beliefs or we say things to try to look good or we cheat on certain things which is a form of lying where we are dishonest about what we actually know or what we've actually done we change our resume or maybe we do all all sorts of things that we might consider small and really, at the core, it's because we're trying to avoid something happening to us, painful. Or we're trying to get something. We're trying to get people to like us. We're trying to get more money. We're trying to get a certain you know, access or privilege in some way. And what Paul says is, don't lie, speak the truth. And each of these really have kind of an opposite to them. He says, don't lie, speak the truth. Are you an honest person? Do you speak truth. Don't lie, speak the truth. Why? Because we are members of one another. We belong. Especially he's talking about in the church now, but this is true. You don't get to say, well, I can lie to anyone out there because I'm not a member of them because God tells us about lying in other places in the Bible. But here he's specifically talking about in the church, you belong to one another. You're a member of one another. And to lie to one another is actually to live in a place where you're not really sharing who you are. You're creating a false self creating false things that you think, creating false ways that, that are of what's happening in your life, and you're not actually allowing people to know the real, true you. So he says, you are members of one another. If you want real relationships, we have to actually share reality and not create a false reality. Haven't you ever seen a romantic comedy? Every single problem is because someone is lying in those things, right? And what happens at the end of it is finally it gets resolved and then they can be together, Well, same thing is true in the church, that lies, dishonesty create a separation and it breaks down relationship. This is what he tells us. Then he says, moving from lying, he talks about anger. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. This is an interesting passage because at the very beginning he says, be angry. You may not have thought that you would have heard that in church. Be angry. Sometimes Christians wrongly teach that anger is sinful. It's not. You should be angry. You should be angry at all sorts of things. You should be angry at sin. You should be angry at injustice. You should be angry at, at the ways that people are treated in our world. You should be angry at poverty. You should be angry at all sorts of problems that exist, broken systems in our world and culture and sin that's done against people and futile thinking and, 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 and hardened hearts. We should be angry. But he says, be angry and do not sin because it is very easy to move from the emotion of anger into then sin. It's really easy to move into that. See, all anger is a perceived injustice. And it might be true, which then we can be righteously angry, but all anger is perceived injustice, perceived something has been done wrong here. I was not treated right. I was not treated fair. This is not okay. This is bad. All anger says that. And it might be true and it might not be true. But even if it is true, it's easy to slip into sinful anger, where we respond wrongly. We respond sinfully. He says, be angry and do not sin. Are you a kind of person that can't be displeased? Can't be displeased in traffic, with customer service, at a restaurant, with people around you, that you experience and feel anger. And then what he talks about is that we sit in it. We sit in it. That's what the idea of don't let the sun go down on your anger. It means that when you are angry, you will have a tendency to sit in it, to just kind of stew, to let it marinate. And he says, this gives the devil an opportunity. And some of you know this, you have felt this, that you have been angry. Someone has done something to you. Someone has said something to you. Someone has not done something for you, not said something to you, and we sit in it. And then what happens? Our hearts begin to grow cold towards that person. The relationship might actually begin to change. Our hearts begin to feel differently towards them, where maybe once there was a relationship, it begins to break down. We fill our mind with what they did. Maybe even you you are trying to go to sleep, but your mind is just thinking about everything that they did, replaying the situation of what they said, and then sometimes you're like, oh, I could have said this, I could have done this, and oh, yeah, what if I would have... And we kind of create these scenarios, and we're sitting in it. We're letting it just kind of soak in. And he says, this actually gives the devil an opportunity. It gives the devil a, some other translations say a foothold. It gives the d- devil room, the language that this, this word actually means. It means we're giving the devil a room. We're giving him access. We're inviting him into our house. What would it be like if Satan said, can I come be a visitor at your house? He says, that's what happens when we allow anger to sit. We're actually giving Satan a room in our house. We're giving him a place in our life. And so our thoughts are changed, our relationships are changed, our emotions towards other people, it damages relationship, which is why he tells us, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? It doesn't mean be as angry as you can all day long, and as soon as the sun starts to set, okay, time to chill. Got that out of the way. That's not what it means. It means make peace quickly. Resolve things quickly. Now, this is, if you are married, this is a great kind of rule for marriage, is never go to bed angry. That's a great rule for marriage. It's a great rule for any relationship. Is If you are angry about something, if you're angry about someone in your community group or in our church or your extended family or your spouse or your kids or whatever it is, don't go to bed angry. That is a good rule because what he is saying is make peace You might feel anger and it might be righteous anger. This thing that happened is actually a sin and it's bad and it's not okay. And it might, you might just be wrong. You might be too easily offended. You might just kind of have a stick in a wrong place. Like it, it just might not be good, right? And whatever the case is, make peace, make peace. Is that your posture? We will get angry. You're going to get angry. You're going to experience, like there's a spectrum of anger from just like "Mm," to a loud shout, right? But you're going to get angry. But do you make peace or do you let that sit? When you let it sit, you are giving Satan a room in your house, giving him a room in your life. Paul says, that's not what you want. You don't want to do that. You want to make peace. Then he moves from that into stealing. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Again, I think stealing might be kind of one of those things that like lying, we go, I'm not a thief. Now, maybe some of you would actually go, yeah, I really struggle. I am a thief. Okay, so that might be where you are. Apparently, there's people in this church that were, that were thieves. And he says, don't do that anymore. Like, okay, good to know. So maybe that's where you are. But I think a lot of us, it's similar to lying, where it's like whatever the, the white lie version of white stealing, right? That we just kind of do a little bit. Might cheat on your taxes or steal, steal small things. Steal small things from work. Like, ah, they won't miss this, these office supplies. Remember one person brought home all these office supplies and they were like, yeah, they won't care. It's like, that's a lot. Like that's actually like a, an aisle of office max. That's not like a paperclip. Like we sometimes think they won't miss this. They already have so much. And so we justify it. Sometimes we steal our time. You're supposed to be working hard, but instead you're on social media. We're supposed to be working hard, but instead we're... Scrolling through YouTube or whatever, and that's stealing time. You are being paid for what you are doing. I know I saw this clip recently of this this family that went into uh, Disney World, and there was like a, a four-year-old or something in a stroller. And they go through because you don't have to pay for a baby in a stroller, and they go through the stroller, and this person was like videoing the whole thing, and they and then out of the stroller comes like this this four year old like oh they had to pass fire change their clothes and like you might think okay yeah it's funny man we saved whatever Disney World is we saved seven hundred dollars you know for that one ticket and and a full size adult gets out of the stroller like that that's not that's stealing you know that's that's not good and Paul actually gives us this totally opposite perspective. Instead of taking things that don't belong to you, get a job, work hard, work with his own hand. He gives the opposite. All of these are really an opposite presentation. Instead of taking things that aren't yours, work hard so you can give what's yours to other people. Isn't that a different perspective? And isn't that God's heart? He says, instead of taking things that aren't yours, work hard, do honest work with your own hands so you have something to share with people. What if instead of thinking about the corners that we can cut and what we could take from our employer or from the business or from someone, what if instead of thinking about what we could take, we actually became the kind of people that said, I want to work hard so I can give. That's the heart that Paul says we are called into, to be people that are not stealing but people that are generous. And then the next section, he says, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And when you hear foul language, I don't know what comes to your mind. I know when I was younger, we, my family was very strict about cussing, and there's a certain set of words. You can't say these seven words or whatever it is. And that's, when the Bible talks about foul language or unwholesome language, that's what it's talking about. Don't say uh, these things, right? Don't use this list of things. But so, because we're human. To my brother, if I'm angry at him, we could just say whatever we wanted. We could say, well, you stupid, fart-faced, dummy idiot. And my parents would be like, there we go, yeah. Way to control your tongue. But it's like, that's not what the Bible's talking about it's not talking about a set of words that can't be used. It's talking, really, when you look at this, what's the opposite of it is building people up in a way that gives them grace, in a way that encourages them, in a way that helps them. So the opposite of that is any language. Maybe it's seven words, but maybe it's just kind of, hmm, okay. That can, be the un, that can be language that's foul, the word foul just means rotten. It means it's, not, it's hurting things. It's hurting relationships. It's making them worse. It's not contributing to building them up. It's not giving grace. So it doesn't matter if it's the two-year-old, you're a dummy pants. It doesn't matter if it's that or if it's the foulest thing that you've ever heard. It, it doesn't matter what it is. It's still language that is tearing people down. It's la- Jesus actually says that we will give an account for every word that we use. So do we gossip about people? That's foul language. Is that building people up? Is it giving grace? If you talk poorly about people in a prayer request, that's foul language. That's hurting people. When you use judgmental words and and accusations towards people, that's foul language. It's not building them up. It's tearing them down. When we use language that is hurtful, when we complain Is that building things up and giving grace, or if we're negative and constantly just complaining about things, doesn't that change the environment and bring it down? No one's around a negative complaining person and go, man, I really, I feel joyful. This life is good now. It just it it brings it down. Foul language is rotten language. It's any language that isn't building people up. It's not offering grace when we accuse, when we judge, when we complain, when we're bitter, when we gossip, when we speak to people meanly, whether it's dummy pants or F-word pants, you know, whatever, like when we speak language, it's anything that tears people down versus build them up. How are you using your language? How are you using your text messages? How are you using your emails? How are you using social media? How are you... Using your conversations, are they often to build people up and give grace, or is it rotten? Is it about people in a negative way? Is it about life in a negative way? Is it about situations in a negative way? Is it constantly going down? Think about how powerful words are. You know how powerful, you know that a kind word and a word, the Bible says in Proverbs that life and death is in the power of a tongue. You know that, right? Can, haven't, some, haven't people spoke things to you before that just give life? Haven't people spoken things to you before that give you grace? Haven't people spoken things to you before that build you up? You know how powerful words are. And, and people have spoken things to you before that that one word can't get out of your head. That one, now Again, you might be too offended. Uh, you know, you've got a log in your own eye, all those things. But, but people's words have power. People's words can hurt us, tear us complaining and gossiping and accusing, and all that stuff can bring us down. Paul says, use your words. There's a huge opportunity. If you knew that your tongue had the power of life to build up, to give grace, that's power. Paul says, you have that. You can live that way. Then he goes into our responses. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. We will be sinned against. That's what this means. You're going to be sinned against. People are going to do things to you. In your marriage, your kids, extended family, co-workers, community group, you will be sinned against. That's going to happen. Okay. So even... we. People are going to speak foul language against you. People are going to lie to you. People are going to steal from you. They're, people are going to be angry with you. People are not going to make peace with you. People are going to sin against you. But how do you respond to that? Do you respond with bitterness? Where you just kind of mull over that. Keep thinking about that. Let that sit. Do you respond with anger and wrath? It means you feel it and you seek to get back at them. Respond with shouting and slander? You... you speak to them or you talk about them? You respond with malice, where you are, again, intentionally trying to get back at them? Or do we forgive? Be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God forgave you in Christ. See, that's what he reminds us of. Like, yeah, people will sin against you, but remember, you sinned against God. And how did God treat you? People will sin against you. They will do things against you. They will hurt you. They will speak ill of you. They will. And how did God treat you when you did that to him? He was kind to you. He was compassionate to you. He forgave you in Jesus. He says, if we remember that, then whatever, that they, whatever they've done to us, is truly nothing in comparison to how we've been to him. And yet his heart is full of kindness and compassion and forgiveness. What if that was how we approached our relationships? We said, yeah, I have been, you can say, I've been mistreated. I have been wronged. I have been sinned against. You can say that and then say, but how did Jesus treat me when I did that to him? Kindness, compassion, forgiveness changes our responses. And then last one, it changes how we approach sexuality. I'll read this part but I'm going to come back to this. Therefore, so everything before and then really this kind of statement flows into this too. He says therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. And then this whole section is about our sexuality. He says but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed And it might feel weird to put greed there. Other translations have coveting, but it's really not just kind of adding a money component to it. It's really talking about this craving and greed and coveting sexually as it's related to all of these more and more and more should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking, those have sexual connotations in them, are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater, does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So this is the final component that he gives to us on considering what it means for us to live. And that that word sexual immorality is the word where we get pornography from. It's pornoneia, which was a junk drawer bucket for all sexual activity that's outside of a covenant marriage. All sexual activity that's outside of that puts it in this language, that the Bible, older translations sometimes would talk about fornication, but sexual immorality is all sexual activity outside of God's design of a husband and wife in a covenanted marriage. That's what that word means. If you don't believe me, we can get out some Bible dictionaries and talk through it, but that's what sexual immorality means. That is what the worldview of Jesus and the apostles and the Old Testament, the New Testament, when they're talking about sexual immorality, it's not the American definition of sexual immorality which is anything is okay as long as it's two consenting or three consenting or six consenting adults. Consent is the only thing that we mean by morality. That's not what the biblical worldview is. So that language, he says, there is not a part of how we live. Because here's, and it's really interesting that the opposite, all of these kind of have an opposite of what we do, right? Instead of malice and bitterness, there's forgiveness. Instead of stealing, there's working hard and being generous. The opposite here is what? Giving thanks. Now it's interesting. You might not think that the opposite of sexual immorality is thankfulness. That's that's not probably if we were to do a quiz like what would we put on this side of the equation? And yet it actually makes sense. Because oftentimes with sexual immorality, it's I want to get what I want. I don't have things that I do want, and I want to get what I do want. I don't, I don't like the way that God has designed things. I want to get things what I want, and I want, and the greed, I want more and more. I want to be able to have these experiences with these people. I don't want to be told that I can't do this. In this world, this was all over the place. It was very, we think that America is like, oh my gosh, me too, and sexual abuse, and yes, it's bad in America, but the way it was 2,000 years ago in Ephesus and in Rome and the Roman Empire, I mean, it was all over the place. It was regular. It was considered normal and good that you would have multiple partners and, and, if, and you could have a slave for this and a concubine for this and, a, and just kind of do whatever you wanted and go to the, the, most of the uh, pagan temples that you would go to. There was temple prostitution and you would go there and part of how you kind of honored the gods was sexual activity of all sorts and kinds and it was, all, it was super prevalent. So the Christian sexual morality ethic was very different And if you're a Christian, you could be looking at all this happening and go, I'm missing out. They have all of this and I'm missing out. So now you start to see why thankfulness is actually the converse. Because it's a mentality that says, but I want this and they have this and they can do this and they can do that. And they've got this just buffet of sexual options. And that's where Crude joking and foolish talking. We we treat sex very casually. Something that the Bible says. The Bible's not prude. The Bible's not prudish. The Bible's not anti-sex. The Bible's one of the most pro-sex books ever written. It's got a whole book in it that's really about sex, the Song of Songs. It's filled with the first. Listen, this is maybe sort of sounds like a pastor joke, but it's true. The first command that God gives is to have sex, be fruitful and multiply. That literally meant have sex. That's, and there's other connotations, but that's what it meant. Have sex, have children. How, how do you be fruitful and multiply? Well, it takes a physical activity. I've got a slide. I'll show you. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it, is, it takes two people coming together. That's the first command that God ever gave to people. Have sex. So the Bible considers sex a beautiful and sacred and holy thing. But in a culture where it's just a buffet, I'll take it, we went to King Buffet in Arvada recently. Oh, it was pretty good. And, um, and it's great cause you've got Chinese food, but you've also got American food. So you want fries and general sales chicken. You can have them both, you know, <laughs> but what happens when you go to a buffet is it's not sacred. You're just like, I'll take a little bit of that, take a little bit of that. And there's still like half of it left on your plate. And you're like, I'm going to go back for more. That's how culture is. That is so sexually perverse. We just say, I want everything. I joke about it, I talk about it, I watch it on TV, I listen to it in songs. It's just, it's everywhere. And you're actually not seeing how sacred it is, how holy it is. You're not actually giving thanks to God. With thankfulness, very different from a buffet, with thankfulness you treat it special with thankfulness. I've never been to a fine dining restaurant and just been like, yeah, I'll have that. I'll have that. I'll order that. I'll have that. And left like a third of a steak on my plate and a third of lobster on my plate. I've I've never done that. If I go to a fine dining restaurant, I, I want to treat it sacredly because I'm using my resources to eat it and enjoy it. It's different from a buffet, which is why he says the antidote is thankfulness. That we actually say, God, I thank you for what you've given to me. I thank you for the sacred, holy gift of what sex is. And so I'm going to treat it the way you've designed it to be. That actually is a totally different posture from just buffet. That means we don't participate in things. It means we shouldn't be watching things. It means we shouldn't be engaged in things. It means we shouldn't even treat it casually and like it's not a big deal. He ends with people that are doing this don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God means he says it's serious. It's not just like, oh, yeah, it's my favorite show, or, yeah, it's not a big deal, or, oh, yeah, you know, live and let live, or it's not a big deal, or it's just this, it's just Instagram, or it's just one time, or it's just this. It's, that's, he says this is serious. This is why the Bible so often when it comes to any of our sin uses the language of putting it to death, not just manage it. So he presents this to us, and he says also, he kind of gives two motivations here. And all these, there's a different motivation. This one has the motivation of a warning that God takes this seriously, and living in this way shows we're actually not a part of his kingdom. And the other warning is, or the other uh, motivation is, it's not proper for the saints. Saints is the most common language that is given to Christians in the Bible. To say you are, the word saint means you're holy, you are set apart. So to live this way isn't proper for God's people that have been set apart. You belong to him. And so we live in the way that he has called us to live. All of this, the core, is that phrase right there. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Walk in love as Christ also loved us gave himself for us. This is the core of all these ethics. When you think about imitating God, there's two ways to think about that. One of of those is we can think about, okay, how was Jesus? I'm going to live like Jesus. That's true. That should influence our decisions. But the other way to think about imitating God means this is who God is and what he's like and what he's done to you. So when we think about this being the core of our ethics, it means any decision that we come to, we should think, How is God? What does God think and do and say? How would He respond? But we should also remember, and this is what Paul has done throughout this section. This is who He's been to me. God speaks truth to me. God makes peace with me. God God doesn't. God doesn't let the sun go down on His anger. God makes peace with me. Do you know that God doesn't just hold a grudge against you? He makes peace with you. Do you know that God speaks truth to you? He isn't isn't hiding. He's not not lying to you about what's good and how life is. God speaks truth to you. And God God doesn't take from you. He's not a thief. God has given to you. He wants to meet your needs. He, He wants to care for you. He's generous to you. God builds you up with his word, with his language. God doesn't want to tear you down with his language. God builds you up. God forgives you. He's not bitter towards you. He's not full of malice and slander towards you. God forgives you. He's kind to you. He's compassionate to you. He has given himself up for you. Even if you think about most of these things, it's us trying to take something for us. I'm lying so I can get something. I'm stealing so I can get something. I'm angry because something has been taken from me and I want something. Sexuality, I want something. And what he tells us is Christ gave himself up for you. He sacrificed for you. He gave him he was willing to lose for you. That's why he also said earlier that when we live this way it grieves the Holy Spirit. Sin is not just breaking the law of God, but breaking the heart of God. Because he is saying, I I have been this way to you and now I'm calling you to live this life with me. So here's what this means. Paul is leading us in a very practical way. He's offering, if, you're, if you've been here the whole series of Ephesians, it starts very much, here's what God has done, and then the second half of the book begins to lead into, now here's what we do. It never separates from what God has done, just like here. It never separates from that, but it begins to be very practical of how we live It will get into marriage and family and work and all sorts of stuff. And here it's just kind of all the different sort of moral categories. He wants it to be very practical. So here's what I want you to think about and do. Which of these areas do you need to focus on? Which of these areas has the Holy Spirit brought to your attention and convicted you of? Identify what areas. It's probably not all of them. My guess is it's one or maybe two. Confess. Confess where you have sinned in these areas. Where have you just kind of settled? You're like, yeah, you know, I've I've kind of come far enough. White lies are okay, white stealing is okay, white sex is okay, white I don't you know, just kind of add whatever the white version is of all those things. Nobody soundbite that clip. Um <laughs> you take which of those areas do you need to go? Maybe I've settled. I've just kind of allowed it to be there. Instead of I've resisted, I've sought, there shouldn't, listen, there there shouldn't be any area of your life that we just talked about or any area, period. There shouldn't be any area of your life where you, that's sinful, that you are okay with. I'm not saying that you will never sin. I'm not saying we walk out of here perfect, but there shouldn't be any area in your life that you are just, that's just who I am. It's just always going to be no area of your life that you should be resigned to or settled in. That's why the Bible over and over again says, no, put it to death, fight, resist, put it off because it's not just you that has the power. God has given you the power. You have a new self. There shouldn't be any area that we're just resigned to. So confess, identify, confess, and then Write out, what does change look like? That's what Paul does. He gives us all these practicals. Don't steal, but work hard and generously give. Don't lie, but speak truth. Don't do this. Instead, be compassionate. So what does practical, actual change look like in your life? And then think about this. How has God God been to you in this area? Think about it. Dwell on it. Consider it. When you do that, we begin to experience the change that we want. Looking at my time, I see I went long here. And you can blame Paul because he gave us a giant list of stuff. It's not my fault. You know that Paul one time preached, now that I've gone long, I can just keep going. But was, you reach a certain limit that's like, well, now I'm past that, so might as well just keep going, right? Once the clock is out the window, it's out the window. Um, you know, Paul one time preached a sermon so long that a guy died. That's true. He, he fell asleep, fell out the window, and died. So don't ever complain about how long my sermons, until one of you dies, I'm not hearing it. Now, Paul raised him back from life. I don't know if I could do that. So That's why I I would preach longer if I was confident I could raise you back to life. We want change. We want to step into the way of life that Jesus has for us. So where do you want to experience change? Paul says, consider where you came from. Consider what he did. And consider then what it means to live In this way, God wants to give you a whole way of life, not just a set of beliefs, not just to feel good. He wants to give you a whole way of life, a new life, life with Him, the life of God. So, as we take communion, which if you're a Christian, we take communion every week. Communion is a time that if you didn't grab one of those little cups on the way in, you can grab one of those. But we remember Jesus' body was broken for us, we remember His blood was shed. For us, We remember, when Paul says imitate God, we remember how he gave himself up for us. We remember what he did for us. We remember how all of these ways, the ultimate expression of them is on the cross. His love, his generosity, even his speaking to us and his building and giving us grace, all of his compassion, his kindness, his forgiveness, all of that. We see the ultimate expression on the cross. He would give us his son to make us new, to cleanse us with his blood. To give us his life. Communion, theologians will say that the sacraments or the ordinances, baptism and communion, they are signs and seals. Sign, meaning it's a sign of what he did for us. And it's a seal, meaning it takes the truth of what he's done and helps impress it upon our heart once again. You gave yourself for me. Listen, Paul gave us a giant list of sin, but communion reminds us you're forgiven. Whatever area in there that you struggle with, I know there's areas in there that I'm asking God to continue to work on my heart and change me. Whatever area in there that you're like, oh yeah, that's me. You're forgiven. Communion's a reminder. Jesus died for that. He died to forgive you, but listen, he died to change you. And we can have that. We can step into that. A whole way of life. So as you take communion, pray. Confess. Don't, Don't ignore the confession. Confess. Thank God for what he's done for you. Ask him to help you to live in the way he's called us to live. Then we'll sing a few songs in response. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for healing, for any of the things we talked about or for anything going on in your life. Father, I thank you for your grace towards us. I thank you that you have forgiven us. and We can, with honesty, look at a list like this and not be afraid. We can look at a list like this and say, yeah, Jesus change me. I don't want to stay there. So I thank you that we can be honest because you have paid for our sin. And God, for anyone that is not in your family, that has not had a new self, pray you would give that to them. Show them what the life of God is. Lead us to walk in the way that you walk. Help us to no longer walk how we were, but to live in the new self that you've given. In your name, Jesus. Amen.